you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to begin my message with two questions. It's a two-parter. Two-part questions are always scary when you're taking a test. This is a very easy test. Question number one, how many of you remember growing up? How many of you can remember that far back? You can remember growing up. All right. How many of you that how many of you is that a good memory for? All right. That's a dangerous question to ask. Second part of that question, if you can remember growing up, how many of you remember this adage, this axiom from growing up? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the dumbest thing ever said. Because every one of us knows now by experience on both ends that words can do an incredible amount of damage. Solomon, wisest man that ever lived, recorded a number of Proverbs about using words wisely. One of them that he wrote is this. He's talking now about wisdom for everyday conversations. As he's writing in Ecclesiastes, he says in Ecclesiastes 10, 12, the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. In effect, the lips of a fool consistently, you put your foot in your own mouth. What he is teaching us in that verse is that our words make an impact on other people. There is no such thing as a throwaway remark. You have never been engaged in, nor will you ever be engaged in, a meaningless conversation. Every conversation has meaning. Every word brings either life or has the power within it to bring death. It is all within Scripture, and this morning, the fruit that we will study will help us greatly in this regard. In Galatians chapter 5, we've been working over the last month now through the fruit of the Spirit. I believe that they are divinely sequenced. The inspiration of the Spirit has listed them and put them in this order, and this morning we'll talk about long-suffering, but let's visit this list again in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Every one of these different fruits has been incredibly practical. In fact, I have personally engaged in this study at a different level than I imagined I would at the onset. These have been terribly convicting to me, none more than this one this morning, long-suffering. Long-suffering is a combination of two words in the Greek. It is the word macro, which gives us long, and it is the word thumia, which tells us about our temper. The reality is long-suffering is communicating to us on a practical level, long-tempered. It's specifically pointing to the idea of taking a very, very, very protracted, very long time before our anger is expressed, if ever. And if it is ever expressed, it is always under control. 
Some people have short fuses. When I say something like that, I imagine that many of us come up with somebody in our minds and we think, yep, they've got a short fuse. If we're honest, a few of us, and I'm including myself in that group, have to admit that we have short fuses. There's very little in life that is any more uncomfortable or devastating than being on the receiving end of someone's temper release. Being on the receiving end of someone's uncontrolled anger. Being underneath the weight of a verbal assault from somebody. Having a stinging remark whose pain lasts for hours, days, weeks, months, years, decades. Long-suffering comes into play. If we are ever going to be a community, if we are ever going to be an individual that truly honors God, this will be a hallmark of our existence. One Greek commentator wrote on this word, long-suffering. He said, it always, in scriptural context, has to do with forbearance of others. He went on and he said, long-suffering has to do with one's long forbearance to those who oppose or distress in some way. Nowhere does Paul attribute such forbearance to the direct working of the Spirit than here, but its appearance here shows that Spirit empowering for this much needed quality, and I love how he says it, of putting up with those who need length and patience. Have you ever encountered someone that you needed to put up with? Say, every day. Say, Pastor, if I'm honest, they're sitting next to me. They're in front of me. They're behind me. They're in the pickup or the drop-off line at school. They're in the office when I first walk in there. It's my employer. It is my employee. It is my kid's teacher. They're here in this room with me. If you're a parent, at times your kids need long-suffering. If you're a kid in here, at times your parents need long-suffering. Husbands, wives, Christians, workers, all of us find ourselves under the weight of this lesson. How do I put up with people who provoke me? How do I put up with people who are different than me? How do I put up with those who say something against me? Long suffering. I believe that God had a purpose in directing Paul to list the fruit of the Spirit in this order. No doubt. Long suffering is here. If I have love and I have joy, and I have peace, then long-suffering will be manifest. It will be seen. It will be a quality in my life. Long-suffering. So much of the fruit of the Spirit has to do with my reaction to other people and my reaction to circumstances. Perhaps one of the greatest lessons that I personally have learned in this study is I have always viewed the fruit of the Spirit as a passive thing. If I simply am standing in a prayer pose, then the fruit of the Spirit will be in my life. But what I have learned is there is much of this that requires action and deliberateness and willfulness and intention and act of volition on my part. It's no different here on being long-suffering. I have to do right when situations or people are not treating me right. I have to do right when situations or people aren't moving as quickly or acting like I would like them to do. One said this, when we're long-suffering, we do not quickly retaliate. 
We don't return like for like or take revenge. Long-suffering is self-restraint in the face of provocation. Doesn't quickly punish. Thinks before it responds. And if it responds, it responds appropriately. Long-suffering. Thinks before it responds. That's a dumb concept. And if it responds, it responds rightly. I can't imagine actually living this out. Doesn't react in the face of provocation. That sounds weak to me. That sounds like you're just not sure of yourself. That sounds like you just don't live with conviction if you don't respond to provocation. Perhaps no more rubber meets the road kind of fruit than this one, which is the idea of hang in there. Hang in there. Keep putting up with. Keep dealing with. Keep lengthening the fuse. Don't surrender to circumstance. Don't surrender to trial. Don't surrender to provocation. Be long-suffering. Why would I be long-suffering? Number one, because God is long-suffering. If we simply meditated on the reality that God is long-suffering this morning, I think it would be enough to make us happy. If we meditated on the fact that God is long-suffering, I think it would be enough to bring about change in our lives to attempt to be like Him. We should all be thankful that God is long-suffering. I don't care how good, I don't care how kind, I don't care how innately friendly you are. If God was not long-suffering, there isn't one of us that would be present here in this room this morning. You say, well, there may be one grandma who's here, not even grandma, because she wasn't always a grandma. Some were literally always grandmas. They just always seemed like grandmas, but even grandma. God is long-suffering. No one is more long-suffering with us than God, who is innately holy. Listen to what Peter wrote. Concerning the coming of Christ, he said, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, get this, but is long-suffering to usward. He is long-suffering in our direction. I think that's a good thing to meditate upon. In Nehemiah chapter 9, there's a classic sermon being preached. It's a lengthy message. They were listening to the sermon most of the time standing up, and it was a very large crowd of people. It's a classic sermon, and I mean that intentionally. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we're listening in. The nation of Israel is being reminded of the goodness of God. And they are being reminded of their reaction to God's goodness. They have been reminded that God, by His power, has removed them from the bondage of Egypt. They're being reminded of God's power as He parted the Red Sea and they crossed through on dry land and the army of the Egyptians that was pursuing them was inundated and and wiped out. They're being reminded of the provision of the manna and the provision of water and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and God's holy law. They're being reminded of how good God was. And then in the midst of this message, the preacher rounds the corner and he says, but this is how we responded to God in the face of all of his goodness. Nehemiah 9, 16. But they and our fathers dealt proudly. Not good hardened their necks 
and hearkened not to thy commandments, refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks. That simply means they refused to submit to his authority. And in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. That's how they responded to God's goodness. A refusal to submit. Refusal to obey and outright open rebellion. Now again, preaching in Nehemiah 9, to really send the message home, the preacher says this, Yea, when they had made them a molten calf and said, This is thy God that brought thee up out of Egypt and had wrought great provocations. Now what that means is this. The word is in there, great provocations. The nation of Israel had looked at God who was nothing but good and nothing but kind to them. And they had refused to submit and outright rebelled against his authority to such a degree that when Moses was on the mountain, they made a molten calf and they said to the nation, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. That's an outright lie. That's a stunning thing. And what they were doing by their behavior was provoking a holy God. They wrought great provocations. How did God respond? Holy God... Righteous, perfect God, when his goodness had been bestowed to the great provocations, here is within this message, Nehemiah 9.18. Yea, when they had made, I'm sorry, 9.17b, the second part, but thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. Verse 19. Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. A verse later, thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth and gavest them water for their thirst. In the midst of their great provocations, God who was holy and could have done whatever he wanted to do, responded in gracious merciful kindness, continued to feed them, continued to give them water. How did they give in response to that? Here's more of the message, verse 28. But after they had rest, they, that's the children of Israel, did evil again before thee. Therefore leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had the dominion over them. Yet when they, your people, returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies. It's all summed up in the 33rd verse. For thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. If God ever treated us like we treat other people, we would be wiped out. If God is not kind to us, if God is not good to us, if God is not prospering us, if we do not sense the favor of God, oftentimes we wring our hands and we scratch our heads and we wonder why is God not being so kind to me? We don't see ourselves as God sees us. We don't comprehend that if we draw breath, it's because God is long-suffering. Do we offer that same long-suffering nature to the world in which we live? And the answer is no. Why hasn't God returned and just burnt this wicked world up? Have you ever longed for that? Have you ever been the kind of Christian that looked at somebody who was living wickedly and in your mind you thought, oh, someday you're going to burn up. Bible says fervent heat. You're just going to be consumed. And I can't wait to see it. We have bad theology, so we'll think things like, someday I'm going to lean over the railing of heaven, 
and I'm going to watch my next door neighbor whose dog barks all night long. I'm just going to watch them burn up in a fervent heat when the Lord returns because I'm right and they're wrong. I think we even look at other believers and we imagine in our minds, I'm going to make it in and there's no way you're actually going to be there. And I'm going to, before you're cast into outer darkness, I'm going to make sure we, we meet eyes and you're going to see my white robe, which is fitted so beautifully. Because I want you to pay, when you get cast in outer darkness, I want you to think of me in heaven while you're on your way to hell. I can't wait for all this world to be burned up. Why, oh why, has God not poured his judgment out on the wickedness of this world? Because God is long-suffering. Spurgeon, prince of preachers, wrote this. I think if you could bear with me a second, he asks this. Why are his chariots so long in coming? Why does he delay? The world grows gray, not alone with age, but with iniquity, and yet the deliverer comes not. We've waited for his footfall at the dead of night and looked out for him through the gates of the morning and expected him in the heat of the day and reckoned that he might come ere yet another sun went down, but he is not here. He waits. He waits very, very long. Will he not come? He then said, long-suffering is that which keeps him from coming. He is bearing with men, not yet the thunderbolt, yet not the riven heavens and the reeling earth, not yet the great white throne and the day of judgment, for he is very pitiful and beareth long with men, even to the cries of his own elect, who cry day and night unto him. He is not in haste to answer, for he is very patient, very slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy." He then said, one of the reasons is that we have not much long-suffering ourselves. We think that we do well to be angry with the rebellious, and so we prove ourselves to be more like Jonah than we are like Jesus. We think we're right to be angry with the rebellious, to long for the fire to pour down on them. We do not comprehend how long-suffering God is. It is our ignorance of the long-suffering nature of God that keeps us so short-tempered with everyone around us. The source of all gossip and maliciousness and evil speaking, the source of the condescending remark, that is all sourced in the fact that we are so short when God is so long. And if we grasp His long-suffering nature, we would have that more toward other people. But the reality is we're more like Jonah than we are like Jesus. He concludes by saying we're staggered. When the master tells us to forgive unto 70 times 7, when he forgives unto 70 times 7 and still waits, and still holds back his thunder, we're amazed because our mind is not in harmony with the infinitely patient God. There are people who will inevitably provoke you. And you will inevitably provoke other people. For every individual that's sitting in here right now and knows God is knocking on their heart's door and telling them, you better exercise some long suffering toward those that are around you. Just know that there's somebody else with their hands clasped praying that they would be more long suffering to you. For everyone that provokes you, just acknowledge that you yourself are also a provoker. To be long-suffering is to be like God because God is long-suffering. This gets really deep at this point. God can help us become long-suffering. 
The Apostle Paul was writing to the believers in Colossae. A great group of people, really, he'd never been there. He's writing to them, he's encouraging them, he's exhorting them, he's praying for them. And in Colossians chapter 1, he's giving voice to one of his prayers, and he's really explicit in what he's praying for. Listen in to Colossians 1, 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful, intentional there, in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What is he praying for? He's praying that they would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. God can help us to become long-suffering. How? Here's something simple. Pray for it. Pray that God would help you. Pray that God would help me to be long-suffering. But he's very specific. He says this in verse 11. I'm praying with all power, being empowered according to the might of his glory. Three times he says in their power, empowered, might. It's two different Greek words. One of them is dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite. That's the innate power of the Holy Spirit within us. I have the innate dynamite power of the Holy Spirit within me, which means I can be victorious over my flesh. The other word that he uses in there is the might of his glory. That indicates a manifestation of his power in my life. I have the indwelling Holy Spirit that allows me to live out the fruit of the Spirit. The grace that I live out is because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It takes the dynamite power of God for me to live out the fruit of the Spirit. Oftentimes when we think of the miraculous power of God, we imagine it's, well, when Jesus fed the 5,000s, that was an incredible miracle, and it was. When Jesus walked on the water, when Jesus said, peace be still, and the sea and the wind was immediately calm, that's incredible power. When he freed the demoniac of Gadara, that is incredible, amazing power. Oh, all of that is. But we've got to remember that at times, all times, it takes that same dynamite power for us, even in the little moments. To be long-suffering requires the dynamite, miraculous power of God. One wrote this, The inner victories of the soul are just as great, if not greater, than the public victories recorded in the annals of history. For David to control his temper when he was being maligned by Shimei was a greater victory than his slaying of Goliath. Literally, for me to keep my mouth shut is a miracle. You say, oh, I've said that before. In fact, I checked my watch and I'm like, shut it now, Lord, work a miracle. Shut the man's mouth now. You could look at your wife and you could say, listen, I wouldn't do it this way. I would put it in much scriptural context. But you could say, when you don't lose your temper, when you keep your mouth shut, it's a miracle. You could look at your husband and say, I'll tell you what, when you don't say that stupid thing that's right there because you have resentment burning on the inside of you and bitterness and you're arrogant and you keep it on the inside and you add length to that fuse, it's a miracle that you do that. But actually it is. It requires the dynamite power of God for the grace of God to be manifest in my life. For me to be long-suffering is a miracle. Here's what Proverbs 16.32 says. 
He that is slow to anger, get this, is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. The mighty men of valor. They're listed within scripture. But if, you, if you're slow to anger, you are exhibiting more strength than a mighty man. If you rule your spirit, you're actually greater than one who takes a city. You know what that's communicating to us? It requires miraculous, intentional, willful effort to rule our spirits and to be slow to anger. It is not a personality quirk that you blow your stack. It's not a personality quirk that you lose your temper and let it fly. It's a sin. It's indicating that you are under the power of the flesh and not under the power of the spirit. Stop letting yourself off because, well, your dad always yelled. I mean, we were constantly fixing drywall in our house. I mean, I had to catch things that were thrown all the time. Well, that's throw away then. Hey, punch the wall every chance you get. It's not okay because of your environment or your wiring. It's sin. He prays for patience in verse 11. Oh God, work a miracle. Help us to be patient. Patience indicates me dealing with troubling scenarios and circumstances. Long-suffering. God, help me with your dynamite power to be long-suffering. If patience is me dealing with uh, provocation and circumstances, then long-suffering is me dealing with people who provoke me. It's stunning how many people can endure a trying circumstance and yet lose their temper on those who are close to them. Gossip and slander and evil speak malign those. Proverbs 25, 28 says this. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. All right. If I rule my spirit, if I literally bring it into subjection, I rule my spirit, I am better than a city taker. If I don't rule my spirit, then I'm like a city whose walls are broken down and I'm easy to infiltrate and easy to overrun. Why is that a big deal? Well, here's why that's a really big deal. In the New Testament, we learn this. We have an adversary, the devil, who walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if I don't have walls around my city and the adversary comes up on me, he can easily overtake me. He can inhabit my city because with my spirit that lacks long suffering, I'm open to attack all the time. That's why when we read, let not the sun go down upon your wrath because we give place to the devil. Do you not comprehend? If we are not long suffering people, we are wide open to the attacks of the devil. Want to know why you lose all the time? You don't rule your spirit. It's indicative of the fact that you capitulate to the flesh. Patience and long-suffering go together if we are going to grow spiritually. You say, and that's a miracle? That's a miracle. God can do miracles. God can do miracles. So I just stand in a prayer pose and God will do the miracle. Listen, when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter lashed out in the flesh and he lopped off Malchus's ear. Now, Jesus had the power to pick up Malchus's ear and put it back on and miraculously healed him. But what Jesus could not do is he could not force Peter in that moment to relent of the anger and the rage that he let out 
in hacking off Malchus's ear. Peter had to rule his own spirit in submission to the instruction of God. Moses, it was a miracle that God gave water to the children of Israel. God can bring water from a rock. That's a miracle. God cannot force Moses to be patient from his heart. So he smashes the rock. He lets out a little rage. He's not long-suffering because we have to rule our spirits. Say, well, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, the, the people had it coming. They had been at Moses for so long. He takes his staff and he hits the rock a couple of times. I mean, they had it coming. And he didn't get to go into the promised land. How costly is that? Long-suffering. God is long-suffering and he can help us to become long-suffering if we will pray for it and we will subdue. We will rule our own spirits. We will be slow to anger. Easier said than done. I've referenced this listing of the fruit of the Spirit is inspired and it's intentional. If the Apostle Paul were here and we could ask him, Paul, what is the first? What's the primary What's the apex of the fruit of the Spirit? He would say love. Because love is listed in the primary spot. Love. Okay, Paul, if we were going to put true love under a microscope, what would it show us? He'd say, if you want to know if someone truly has love, here's the first item in the list. In 1 Corinthians 13.4, here's what he says of love. Charity suffereth long. The number one on the list is love. And if you really want to know if somebody loves, if they're living out the love of Jesus Christ, the primary thing on the list is it will be long-suffering. You will be able to put up with provokers. You know how you pastor for 19 years? Long-suffering. Listen, both directions. Both directions. I would never have come to this church when it was pastored by a 27-year-old. I would not come now when it's pastored by a 38-year-old. I wouldn't do it. Yeah. The long-suffering has to go both ways. Listen, there's going to be somebody in your life, I'm telling you, that when you see them, you are going to shudder immediately. And you're going to think, I really would love... I mean, there's nothing probably more satisfying than an unguarded throat punch on someone. Just watch them wheeze, gasp, roll around on the floor, and ooh, that felt good. They had it coming, man. You say, you ever imagine that? No, never. Suffering long is the idea of when I see that person, I don't give any release to that inner rage, that fomentation of resentment and bitterness. Really, it's pride in my own heart. If I love like Jesus loves, the primary manifestation of my Jesus-like love will be that I'm long-suffering toward other people. And if I'm not long-suffering, it indicates that I am not loving. And if I am not loving, get this, this is punitive. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, that's love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. 
And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So here's what we're doing. We're simply scripturally reasoning. If I don't have love, then literally I can give all of my goods away. I can give my own body to be burned, but it profits me nothing because it's not sourced in and motivated by love. I am nothing. Those are strong words. If I don't have love as my core motivation, my entire life is a big fat zero. Now I can backtrack further and I can say, if I am not long-suffering, then I am not loving. And if I am not loving, all of my life and ministry is worth zero. You cannot put enough emphasis on the fact that we must be long-suffering people. Because we're loving people. We're all in growing mode. Not one of us has arrived, but growing requires discipline and it requires commitment. Long-suffering is something that each of us could use improvement in. And it can't be separated from love. One wrote this, and I'll close with this. A long-suffering person knows the shortness of time and the length of eternity. Long-suffering is really faith in action. It is one of the matchless characteristics of Christ Himself. If we would learn to be long-suffering, then He alone can teach us. There are many facsimiles of virtue, but authentically being long-suffering comes as a result of our deep personal relationship with Christ. If you're not a long-suffering spouse, you have work to do. If you're not a long-suffering co-worker or parent, you've got work to do. Not a long-suffering fellow Christian, you've got work to do. There's someone that comes to mind and the reality is move them out of the way and picture your own image there and recognize all of us have work to do. Would you please bow your heads just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.